to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Today, we're talking about how to improve your communication, but we're not going to talk about how to become better at small talk or how to be more persuasive or anything like that. Instead, we're talking about listening. Becoming a better listener could be the most powerful thing you could do to change your relationships and even change someone else's life. My guest today is Dr. Mark Goulston. He's a psychiatrist, executive coach, and a consultant to many major organizations. He's also the best-selling author of several great books, including Just Listen. On today's show, he shares why it benefits you to become a better listener, the exact steps you can take to encourage other people to talk more, and the strategies that can sharpen your listening skills right now. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for The therapist Take. It's the part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and share how you can start applying them to your own life. So here's Dr. Goulston on how becoming a better listener can help you grow mentally stronger. Dr. Mark Goulston, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. It's great to be here with you, Amy. So you and I met a few weeks ago when I got to be a guest on your show. And I am on several podcasts a week. And a lot of times when I go on podcasts, people have a prescribed list of questions. Maybe they're going to get through five, 10 questions in 30 minutes And no matter what kind of answers I give, we move on to the next question. My experience being on your show is much different. You didn't seem to have a really strict agenda. You asked some questions. And then whatever I answered, you had another amazing follow-up question to that. So I wasn't surprised to learn that you've written a book about listening. In fact, it's called Just Listen. And I've since learned all of the cool things that you've done probably because of your listening skills. You were a FBI hostage negotiator, trainer, you're a psychiatrist. And you've worked with a lot of patients who were had thoughts of suicide. So I'd love to know, though, what's behind the book? Just listen. How did you come up with the idea to write a book about listening skills? Well, I, I need to share a funny story, and then I'm going to share some other stories. But uh, some years ago, I was walking to my office, and there were two really smashed, drunken people mowing their lawns, bare-chested surfer dudes and I'm not a surfer dude, and, and real muscular guys, and they're bantering. And I pass one, and he says to me, uh, pray, in order to pass, pray tell us to seek the secret to peace on earth. And, you know, and he smashed. And what they didn't know is that I'm pretty quick on my feet. I've trained hostage negotiators. So I get in front of the next one, and I look back at them. And by this time, they'd forgotten. They asked me a question. And I said, uh, pray tell, I have the answer. And they looked at me and they said, what? I said, you asked me, pray, tell us the secret to peace on earth in order to pass. And I have the answer. And they looked at me, huh? And I said, here's the secret. Listen more than you talk. And they shrugged their shoulders, looked at each other and said, ye may pass. But that's that's sort of a humorous story. But actually, I shared with you before that there's a few stories I wanted to share with you and your listeners One was where I listened into someone's mind who was dead. That's an interesting story. And I listened into someone's eyes. And then I listened into someone's soul. 
So I think people do remember stories. So the listening into someone's mind, I was remember I was a medical student in Boston, and we were on rounds at a VA hospital, and we were in front of Mr. Smith's room, and all the other doctors were posturing and competing. I think Mr. Smith needs more chemo. Oh, I think he needs surgery. I think he needs more tests. And it was way above my pay grade. I mean, I, I hardly said anything. I just sort of listened. And, and I felt intimidated by their all jockeying. And then a nurse came over and said, didn't you hear Mr. Smith jumped from the roof last night and he's in the morgue? And they all went just quiet. And Amy, I swear, as we're sitting here, I heard a voice as loud as your voice and my voice. And it said, maybe Mr. Smith needed something else. And, that, and then the group moved on to the next room. And then some years later, I remember uh, I was training at UCLA and, there, and I was paged to see a patient uh, to okay putting him in restraints, his arms and his legs, and to okay an antipsychotic medication. Uh, and the, I was paged by the doctors in the, uh, it wasn't the ICU, and he actually had AIDS before the name AIDS was given to the illness. So that'll, that'll date it back into the late 1970s, early 1980s. And I remember, I, we'll call him Mr. Jones. I go into Mr. Jones' room. He has a respirator a tube. He has uh, IVs. His, his arms and his legs are tied down. And his eyes are as big as saucers. And he's just trying to communicate, but he can't because he has this respirator tube. And he's looking at me with those eyes and he says, and he's going, ah, ah, ah. I said, what is it? And he's just going, ah, ah, ah. and I put a pencil in one of his restrained hands. I said, write it down. And he just scribbled. And I thought, well, maybe the other doctors are right. Maybe he's just psychotic. And so I calmly said, we had to put your, your arms and your legs down because you were pulling at the IVs, you were kicking everything on the bed, you were pulling at the respirator, and I'm giving you a medication to calm you down, and then when you calm down, we'll take everything off. And again, his eyes were like saucer, and he's just screaming at me through his eyes, like, eh, eh, eh. and I said, what is it? And I, and I just figured the doctors were right. 24 hours later, I get a page, and they said, Mr. Jones is up, He's off the respirator, and he told us to page you. So I go into his room. He's off the respirator. He's, he has IVs. He's seated. And I'm telling you, Amy, he grabbed onto my eyes. This is the listening into someone's eyes. And he said, pull up a chair. And he seated me in a chair with his eyes. And he wouldn't let go of my eyes. And what he said to me was, what I was trying to tell you is that a piece of the respirator tube had broken off and was stuck in my throat. And you do know that I will kill myself before I go through that again. Do you understand me? And he just held onto my eyes. And my eyes watered up with emotion. I said, I'm, I'm so sorry. I understand. And then... Uh, Go a couple years later, and I became a suicide specialist because one of my early mentors was a fellow named Dr. Edwin Schneidman. And if you look up Edwin Schneidman, he was one of the pioneers in the study of suicide prevention. He uh, founded the American Association of Suicidology. He was a co-founder of the Suicide Prevention Centers in Washington and Los Angeles. And what would happen is he would go and do consultations on the inpatient unit units at UCLA. And 
there were some patients that were still suicidal, but they weren't acutely suicidal. So they needed to be discharged because you couldn't keep them there forever. So even though they would sign some say, some notes saying, I promise not to hurt myself, you know, the residents were uncomfortable with them. So Dr. Schneidman would go up, he'd do a consultation, refer them to me. And this is basically how I started my practice. And and one of the one of the greatest good fortunes of my career is that uh, I was about to finish my training at UCLA and I was going to go into a fellowship and the fellowship uh, got canceled the week before I finished. So I said, well, I'll just go out to practice, see if anybody refers to me. And by this time, I'd had a relationship with Dr. Schneiden and, and he would refer me people. And my good fortune is that if I worked in an institution, I would really be worried about making sure I checked all the boxes. But since I didn't have to do that, by this time, I learned to listen into people's eyes. And you don't have to be a therapist to see that when you look into people's eyes and you let go of your own agenda and you try not to get scared, people are screaming out at you to, to get them out of there. And so, and I used to get this signal from patients, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. So I, let go of the boxes and just saw where the eyes, their eyes took me. And it really reached a dramatic point. And this is the listening in the people's souls. And I'll call this person Nancy. And Nancy had made three suicide attempts and had been in the hospital one to two months every year for four years before I started seeing her. And I didn't think I was helping her at all. I mean, she came in, she, she didn't really look at me or make eye contact. She wasn't catatonic. But I didn't think I was helping her at all. And in those days, I used to moonlight, which meant that once a month, I would go to the state hospital, Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk, California, and you cover for other doctors, you do admissions, and you go on the wards, and you write orders. And sometimes you'd be up 24 hours. And if you've ever pulled an all-nighter, you know what happens when you're up all night. And so I remember there was one Monday when I came in after I'd been up 24 hours, maybe even longer, and there's Nancy. And she's not looking at me. She's looking, you know, 30 degrees to the left of me. And if you're me and I'm Nancy, she's like this, Amy. And as I'm seated with her, suddenly all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out and the room is black and white. And then I get these chills going through me. And I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. So I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a medical doctor, and I do a neurologic exam on myself to see if I'm having a stroke or a seizure. You know, I'm tapping my knees, I'm tapping my elbows, I'm looking at my fingers to see if I'm seeing double. And it wasn't rude because she wasn't making eye contact. And I realized I'm not having a stroke or seizure. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world from her dark night of the soul. That's why it was black and white and why I felt chilled. And because I was sleep deprived, I was a little bit uninhibited. And I said this to her, uh, something that I didn't write in the medical record. And you'll understand why. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to, to get out of all the pain. And I thought, 
did I think that or did I say that? And I said, I think I just gave her permission. And Amy, it was the first time she made eye contact and she grabbed onto my eyes just like Mr. Jones had uh, in that hospital bed. And I said, what are you thinking? And she leaned in and she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of this pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. And so then I grabbed onto her eyes and I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any treatments that you've been through before unless you say to me, I think we should try a treatment. Because if we start chasing our tail, I'll give you a treatment. You'll come back in. You'll tell me that you didn't try it or it didn't work. Would that be okay? And I'm still holding on to her eyes because this is the first time we made eye contact. And she looked at me with a look that said, keep talking. And then I leaned in further and I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are. And I'm going to keep you company there because you've been there alone too long. Would that be okay? And then her eyes teared up a little bit and uh, she started to heal. She actually became a therapist and I think she's the best pure natural therapist I've ever met because she's lived in hell for a long time. So, so everybody is capable of listening into people's eyes. And I, and I want to give your, and thank you for allowing me to tell those stories. And, and, and can I give some tips that people can use immediately? Sure. Before we dive into tips, though, can you tell me, what do you think about, because most of us won't ever encounter a suicidal patient or we don't need it in our professional daily life, but just tell us what are the benefits of learning how to be a better listener just in our personal lives? Uh, what will happen is uh, it will lessen or eliminate conflicts. It'll make you more successful everywhere. In fact, here's a new exercise that you're not aware of because it's it's not in the books. It's it's new, and it's in my present work. And here's an exercise that if your listeners uh, or viewers, if they see an excerpt of this, follow this. If you do this once a day for a week, it will change all your relationships. And if you keep doing it forever, it will change all your relationships and make you more successful forever. And it's called the HUVA exercise, not like the vacuum cleaner. It's H-U-V-A. And what it and this is how you do it. Pick one conversation a day where you're making a commitment to be as present in the conversation as you can. Present meaning that you're really connecting to them as opposed to being transactional. And what you do, you have to have that intention ahead of time. You say, this is the conversation I'm going to try out Hoover on. And then after the conversation, you rate yourself as if you were them because you're going to build up a muscle. So after the conversation... On a scale of 1 to 10, from their point of view, H is how much did they feel that you heard them out? Did you interrupt them? Did you change the subject? Did you act distracted? So on a scale of 1 to 10, how much did they feel heard out by you? U is how much did they feel understood by you on a scale of 1 to 10? Uh, did you ask them to say more about something? When they showed a little emotion, like, this is awful, or this is terrific, did you say, say more about what was awful? 
But tell me more about what was terrific. Did they feel understood by you? And then V, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much did they feel valued? You know, when they said something, how much did you sincerely you know, actually value what they said? How much did you, did you uh, in all honesty, say, that's remarkable? How did you come to do that? And then the final part of the exercise is A, how much did they, on a scale of 1 to 10, feel that you added value? And what does that look like? You might say, uh, you know, for instance, you added value in your listing by saying, well, we understand and thank you for sharing the story about the suicidal patient, but uh, how can listing help all of us in our lives? So you did a great job, Amy, of all of those. And at the end, tail in, you added value by saying, what's the benefit if all of us become better listeners? Thank you. Because I think a lot of people think that listening is just not talking, but it's not. You make it abundantly clear. It's not enough to just stay silent. And as a therapist, I see this happen a lot in the office. When somebody's talking, the other person, whether it's a couple or a parent, they're not really listening. They're just sort of figuring out what they're going to say next. And when this person says, uh, I'm struggling with this, then they say, yeah, but here's what I'm going through. Here's what you did wrong. How do you become a, a better listener so that you can you can do those things? If you're so used to always just thinking about what you're going to say next, how do you reframe that so you can be somebody who becomes a really good listener? Well, uh, I'm going to do an exercise with you. So let's both hope it pays off because All right. th- there's a difference between listening to someone and listening for something. So in addition to the Hoover exercise, something that I would encourage you to realize that Whoever you're with is not just listening to you for information and bullet points. They're listening for something. So we've had, uh, I hope from your end, it's a pretty decent conversation, but it's gone along. You've listened to me. And tell me if this is what you might be listening for. And if you can figure it out without the other person telling you, the other person's going to lean in because you get them. So. Wish me luck in this, Amy. All right. I think what you're listening for is the trust and confidence of your listeners that you will give them value is really important to you. Yep. And you don't want to disappoint them. You don't want to waste their time. You don't want to make them feel worse about themselves. So you're listening for experts or people who come on who can give them immediately usable value with practical tips that they themselves can do. Well, you don't have to be a therapist to get some help. And I'm guessing you might also be listening for that occasional expert who has a dynamite book, but they're just awful. I mean, they're boring. They're, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, I can't post this. <laughs> I gotta okay. protect I gotta protect my listeners. Geez, I'm glad they're so successful. And maybe you have to go back and say, you know, we ran into something, we can do the interview over again. But is any of that accurate that you're listening to be able to honor the trust that your listeners have that you'll give them value in every episode? Yeah, all of that was absolutely accurate. Yeah. 
Have there been experts that you had to go back and say, you know, we couldn't use it? Or you just gritted your teeth and said, well, I hope my listeners will forgive me. But, you know, this one was just terrible. It's always when we don't air, it's usually because there was audio quality issues. Uh, So, so far, we haven't had the problem where we haven't been able to air something. But we do keep that in the back of our minds that maybe someday there will be an interview that we don't feel like adds enough value to justify taking up one of our slots. Geez, I hope I passed the sniff test. I'll tell you. <laughs> you definitely have. And um, because I, I know that so many people struggle with, with listening. And especially in our day and age where everybody has their smartphone in their hand, it's hard to compete with that when your phone goes ding or you want to know, do I have any messages or an email? And you're sitting at the table across from somebody but there's nothing worse than you're in the middle of telling somebody something and they pick up their phone and they start scrolling. <laughs> How do we become better at not just staying quiet, but showing that we're actually listening to somebody? Because you talk a lot in your book too about it's not just about being quiet or about asking a random follow-up question. It's about making sure the other person feels felt. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that Dr. Schneidman used to do, but you know, he died some years ago and this is uh, I, I think he died after the iPhone came out, but he was mainly pre-iPhone. But one of the things he would do when he would see patients is he'd step in a room and, and, and he would make it quite visible. He would take his watch off and put it to the side. And if he had a, a, a cell phone, he would shut it off and put it face down. And, and if you think that's a remarkable gesture, in a sense, what you're saying is, I want to give you my undivided attention. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you can do that if you're listening in, oh, but I might miss a call. But even gestures like that, uh, you will be so memorable because nobody does that. I think so, too. And so many of us just want to be heard. And then when we share our thoughts. Somebody's really quick to offer us advice or uh, minimize how we feel or just say something that kind of invalidates how we feel like, oh, don't don't feel that way or don't worry about it. Like, no, I am worried about it. How do we make sure that people know that we understand how they feel? Well, one of the things that uh, uh, I do to try to get people into the mind space about really listening and letting people open up is I have people share a story. And I don't know if you have one, but you might. Uh, and and I've, already, I've already used up, I've, I've tons of stories, but I think I used up my quota already for this episode. But can you remember any times in your life when you were listened to, you know, during your life, maybe by a, if you were fortunate, a parent, a grandparent, a teacher, uh, someone who really listened or sensed that something wasn't going right and and in just the right timing said, are you okay? There's something going on with you. So do you have times in your life, and it could have been a therapist, where someone did that to you or for you? Yeah. As a therapist, I was lucky to work in an office with other therapists. So when we'd pass each other in the hallway and you say, hey, how are you? And you say, you know, usually the friendly, great, how are you? Or I'm doing fine. But when you work with therapists, often they pick up on the subtle cues when you're having a bad day or when things are off. And I can remember a day when somebody came into my office after work saying, no, what's really going on? And had a whole conversation about it because she knew that I was struggling with something outside of work and picked up on it and 
made me feel much better than being able to just, you know, do the polite, yeah, I'm good kind of conversations. And you can, uh, uh, I know you have to be the host of this episode, but as you said that, I'm actually picturing that happening to you. And if you didn't have to be such a great host of this episode, I can, I could, I could feel the emotion underneath. You're just recalling that you were having a bad day, and she, she wouldn't let it go. She wouldn't let you blow it right. off. And then you had a conversation, and you felt better. Right, and just remembering that as a therapist too, to know that uh, how powerful that is. People who came into my therapy office uh, often felt like they were struggling with something and nobody listened or they were afraid to tell somebody because what if somebody either didn't believe you or what if they didn't care? And what it's like to know that somebody actually wants to understand you better. And for a lot of people, they think that they felt like that was the first time that had ever happened and how powerful it was to say, hey, I'm struggling with something and somebody else actually cares what I'm going through rather than just saying, don't worry, or here's some advice, or try these three things tomorrow. Because as you say, when we just hand out advice, people are really quick to say it didn't work, or uh, or they claim that they're going to try it, and then they don't. I mean, how often if your dentist says you should floss more often, you're not going to say, actually, no, I'm not. Of course, we say nod and smile, and yes, I'm going to do that. And then you go home, and you probably won't. But uh, we all go through that when other people are really quick to hand us advice rather than to figure out what's actually going on with us. Well, that's totally true. I, I, I'll just share another quick story. And, and again, because you know, it does go back to when I was, a, now I, I speak and I teach therapists and I teach parents how to get through to the people in their life that they love, that they're worried about. But I, I remember years back, there was a patient I was seeing who was suicidal. And I said to him, and this gets back to your talking about what it feels like to feel cared about as opposed to just be given advice. And I said to him, um, what helped? You know, I'm glad that you seem to be feeling better. And I'll never forget this, Amy. And he looked at me and he said, you're the only person in my life that I'm not a burden to and that I don't scare. And in fact, when Every time I see you, you're glad to see me. And it's not just about whether I took medication or did what I was supposed to do. And he said, when I first started seeing you, I kept looking over my shoulder because you were glad to see me. And I thought you were looking at someone else. Because one of the reasons I was suicidal is because when you, you feel like you're a burden or you scare everyone else and you're feeling hopeless, why don't you just... Uh, take yourself out instead of burdening people. And he said, you know, I thought you must have been crazy being glad to see me, uh, but you were like this oasis of a person who I wasn't scaring or burdening. You know, just think about that, what that's like to be able to just meet somebody. We talk so much about meet people where they are, but how powerful that is sometimes and to not just always try to cheer people up or calm them down. Sometimes it's okay to just sit with whatever they're feeling. Absolutely. Can, um, can I give a couple, a few tips because I'm doing a lot of interviews because people are worried about their kids. They're worried about their teenagers, yes. worried about the young adults. And so, so here are some tactics that you can use uh, if you're worried about a spouse, if you're worried about a teenager. Now you have to realize that if you're a parent and you're worried about a teenager or maybe a spouse, they usually hate heart-to-heart -heart talks unless they initiate them, and most teenagers won't. 
So what you want to do is do this when you're doing an activity, like you're driving with each other, uh, so that it's not eye to eye, which can, which can really turn them off. And, and this is the exact script that you use. And you say, you know, a lot of us parents are worried about the effect of this pandemic on our kids. You know, you've been isolated. You haven't been able to see your, your friends. And it's been rough. So, so, honey, can I just ask you a few questions? Because we're all worried. So hopefully that will at least get you, okay, Ma, or okay, Dad. And this is what you say. And you say, at its absolute worst, at its most painful, how awful are you capable of feeling about yourself or your life? And frequently they'll say, pretty awful. And there's a, there's a term that I use. It came out in one of my recent co-authored books, Why Cope When You Can Heal. It's called Surgical Empathy. So I'm demonstrating surgical empathy where you go in and they say, uh, pretty bad. You say, pretty bad or very bad? Okay, mom already. Okay, okay, very bad. And then you say, and when you're feeling that, how alone are you capable of feeling? Pretty alone. And then you go deeper because you want to open them up. Pretty alone or all alone? Okay, okay already, all alone. Then the third thing you say to them is, take me to the last time you felt it. They're going to say, what? Yeah, was it 2.30 in the morning? Because, you know, we heard you sort of walking around in your room at 2.30. Or well, when was the last time you felt that awful and felt that alone? And here's something that you'll immediately understand, Amy, and any therapist will immediately understand, or maybe even people who are good communicators. When someone tells you, about an event and they describe it so clearly that you can see it with your eyes, they refeel it. So when your child says, yeah, I was walking around at 2.30, I couldn't get back to sleep. And I tried to go back to sleep and I got up again. Then you say, that sounds awful. Then what happened? Well, I, I started, I felt agitated. And at one point, I didn't know whether to just punch a hole in the wall. And I was just really upset. Wow. And then what happened? Then I started looking for old medications, you know, old sleeping meds, but I couldn't find any. And you stay with them. And then what happened? Then the sun rose. Then the fourth thing you say to your child is, and you look them straight in the eye like I'm looking in yours, I have a favor to ask you. Whenever you're feeling that way or close to feeling that way, I want you to do whatever it takes to get your dad or your mom or my undivided attention. Because we have a lot of things on our mind, but there is nothing more important than you getting our undivided attention because we don't want you to be alone there. Do you understand me, honey? So you can modify those, but can you see how that might open up a way through? Yeah, and that's great advice right now when people are struggling so much with figuring out, I guess, so many questions from parents. Like, what do I do with my kids now? Or how do we spend this summer? Or what if they are feeling isolated? Or I don't know how they're feeling during the pandemic. So that's a great way to strike up a conversation to find out. In the time that we have left, do you have any other tips that can help somebody figure out how do I become a better listener? Um, you know, I'm a, uh, I do a lot of things and I'm an executive coach. And in fact, I'm one of, Marshall Goldsmith is the top executive coach in the world. He's all over LinkedIn and he actually nominated to become one of his 100 coaches. So I'm one of his 100 coaches. And one of the things that I love about Marshall's work is he says, focus on the future that nobody has screwed up yet. 
Because if you focus on something that's already happened, people get defensive. So what you can do is you go to the people you care about in your life and you say, going forward, I want to be a better listener because you deserve to be heard and feel heard. Going forward, what is one positive, observable thing that if I did consistently, and what is one negative thing, uh, one negative observable behavior that if I stop completely would cause you to feel I'm a better listener and that I'm hearing you? See, it's much help, more helpful if you say going forward, because if someone starts saying, well, you're a terrible listener, you didn't do such and such, our natural reaction is to get defensive. And then the other person is likely to say, I don't even know why we even had the conversation. Yes, I so appreciate that you said that because we all have room to improve. We all have opportunities to practice listening, to get better today than we were yesterday and to grow even more tomorrow. For somebody out there who says, all right, I am a horrible listener. I, I talk way too much. Or I just don't understand people. Uh, what would be your parting words of wisdom aside from telling them to go go read your book, just listen? But is there one more uh, tip, one more strategy that you would give somebody to get started for being a better listener? Absolutely. Look up Mark Goulston traffic light rule. So I, I contributed blogs to Harvard Business Review some years ago. And this blog was the most read of all the blogs for that week. And it was called How to Tell If You Talk Too Much. And if you look it up, you'll see it. And what I shared was something I call the traffic light rule. I have a good friend. He's a career host, uh, coach named Marty Nemko. And when my book came out and we got into some conversations, he, and, I, and I love Marty, but he's really direct. He said, you know, Mark, for a guy who wrote a book on listening, you're terrible. And he said, you need to follow the traffic light rule. And I said, what's that? He said, unless you're a guest on a radio show and you're invited to share your wisdom, in regular conversation, you have 30 seconds. I've increased it because of places like Clubhouse. Because uh, originally he said, you have 20 seconds before the green light turns to yellow. And then you have another 20 seconds before the yellow light turns to red and you've worn out your welcome. And those first 40 seconds, or if you do 30 and 30, 60 seconds, they feel like two seconds because you feel so good to be getting stuff off your chest. But uh, if you're just in regular conversation, uh, what happens is you need to obey the traffic light rule and not keep talking. And it's very difficult because what happens is, is if you're shy and you're an introvert, which I am, so many times I won't talk. I'll listen. It's easier for me to listen and talk. And you might say, I never would have guessed that, Mark. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, what happens is once you start to open up, it feels so good. You stop looking at the irritation in the other person. You don't take any hints because, oh, I'm feeling so good. I'm getting stuff off my chest. This is wonderful. And you're not noticing that they're getting fidgety or they're starting to sort of twitch or something like because you've been talking too much. But I think the traffic light rule is a great one for all of us. I love that. That's a wonderful rule to live by to think about that. Dr. Mark Goldston, I hope all of our listeners go pick up a copy of Just Listen and all your other books. I'll make sure that we link to them in our show notes too so that they can find you and find out more information about how to become a better listener. 
Well, you did a great job. You, you, I'll tell you, you gave me a long leash and I used it. Thank you. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Again, I think our listeners will all benefit from being able to take in more of that. I think the world would be a better place if people were better listeners. <laughs> Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Dr. Goulston's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, be present in one conversation each day. Dr. Goulston didn't say you have to be present in every single conversation you have. Instead, he recommended that you start with just one conversation at a time. Choose a specific conversation where you really want to focus on your listening skills. Put away your phone and don't worry about what you're going to share. Instead, focus on hearing what the other person is saying. Lean in, ask questions that show you want to know more, and invest your energy into learning more about the other person. For a few minutes, make your sole focus to be on listening to what the other person is communicating. Number two, evaluate your listening skills. Rather than judge a conversation based on how interesting the talker was or how much you shared, evaluate your listening skills. Think about the steps that you took to ensure the other person felt heard and consider what you could do differently in the future. Listening is a skill, and just like any other skill, you have to practice it to get better. The good news is you can choose to work on your listening skills at any time, and there's a good chance we all have room for improvement sometimes. So after that conversation, take a few minutes to reflect on how you did. You might even give yourself a grade like a teacher and determine what it is that you want to do better next time. Number three, use the traffic light rule when you're talking. Dr. Goulston recommends using this rule to ensure that you're not dominating the conversation. When you're talking to someone else, just think of a traffic light. The first 20 seconds, you have a green light. And that's when the listener is much more likely to be paying attention to what you're saying. The next 20 seconds is the yellow light. Use caution because the other person might be getting bored by now. And the last 20 seconds is a red light. Your listener might start to tune you out. Of course, there will be times when you need in-depth conversations that take way longer than a minute, and that's okay, but remember, in general, telling really long stories about yourself or analyzing everything you do out loud might repel people more often than it attracts them. If you really want to form deeper connections, focus on listening to other people more rather than revealing more about yourself. So those are three of Dr. Goulston's strategies that I highly recommend. Be present in one conversation each day, evaluate your listening skills, and use the traffic light rule when you're talking. For more of Dr. Goulston's listening tips, check out his book, Just Listen. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcast.